The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning. The scripture for today's sermon is morning is Judges chapter 13. I'll be reading verses 1 through 5. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And just for the way you continue to reveal more and more about the bright light of your gospel through the darkness of judges. And I pray that you would do that uh, this morning. Let us see more of you. And may seeing more of you grow our trust, our faith, our love. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, by your spirit. Amen. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 13. Um, in the Disney animated movie Aladdin, which can I just say, I don't ever use movie references. And this is the second week I'm starting with one. And I'll show you I don't watch movies at this period of my life because I have five children and movies are impossible to sit down and watch. But it'll show you that I don't because my movie references have been Lord of the Rings and now Aladdin. So we're rocking the early 2000s and the 90s right now. But anyway, in the Disney animated movie Aladdin, there, there's this like classic moment uh, where Aladdin invites Princess Jasmine to go on a magic carpet ride with him. She's not sure that she should step off of her balcony onto this flying carpet, so Aladdin simply extends his hand, and he says to her, I'm looking for my 90s kids. Where are y'all at? Yes, he says, do you trust me? And before you know it, they're off, seeing unbelievable sights, feeling indescribable feelings, soaring, tumbling, freewheeling on a magic carpet ride. It's a whole new world. Don't you dare close your eyes. All right. I imagine, I imagine that that's kind of what the invitation might have felt like at the end of last week's sermon. Last week, uh, we got this pause, this break in the midst of all of the darkness of judges. We got this pause and in which we, we saw God reaffirming his promise that he has a future for his people. And it's a future that is full of hope. And when I hear that promise reaffirmed from the Lord, I'm like, yeah, that's the magic carpet ride that I've been waiting on to fly me away from all of my current troubles to a whole new world with a future and a hope. But Shades, that's not an accurate image of the invitation that God is extending. I think we feel that way. Anytime we, we, we settle into the positive promises of Scripture, where God's 
talking about his future for his people. He's talking about how he'll give us a hope. He's talking about redemption. We automatically want to translate those things into some form of escapism. God's promising to get me out of all of the suffering and darkness that I feel in the here and the now. That's the invitation that we think he is extending. But in order to believe that, we have to ignore the plethora, the the torrential downpour of other texts, like where Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation. Like, the invitation that God is extending when he promises us in the future and a hope, it looks more like, if if we go back to our movie, we go back to Aladdin. When, When Aladdin asked Jasmine, do you trust me? That's actually a callback line. It's the second time he is asking that to her in the movie. The first time wasn't to invite her aboard a magic carpet ride. No, the first time they were in the marketplace being chased by guards and they get trapped at the top of this building and he is inviting her to leap off of it in order to escape. Guards behind, free fall in front, no no, no unbelievable sights, probably some indescribable feelings, but of a very different kind. It's just death in both directions. And he looks at her and he extends his hand and he says, do you trust me? That, that's the invitation that we are getting in Judges 13. When we look back in the book of Judges, all we see is darkness behind us. And when we look forward, Shades, if we could walk through the next couple of chapters this morning, it looks like an absolute free fall. Judges looks like death in, in both directions. And through chapters 12 and 13, God extends his hand to us as his people and says, I have a future and a hope. Do you trust me? Like Shades, do we? Like when our days that we live in seem as dark as the days of the judges. And, and like, there's no shred of light anywhere. Will we walk with God at that moment, still trusting, still believing he has a guaranteed future and a hope? Even if we don't ever see it in this life, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Will we believe that and follow him in the midst of the tribulation, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of death? Will we trust him. I believe Judges 13 is here to help us do exactly that. And it does it by showing us why we should trust him and what that trust looks like or or how, how we should trust him. So let's take those one at a time. First, why? In the midst of darkness, Nothing but dark behind, free fall in front, death in both directions. Why should we trust God? Read with me. Judges 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. We are entering into our final major judge cycle. This is it. We're about to get Samson. We're going to be with him for a couple of weeks. And after that, it's nothing but an extended conclusion, two conclusions actually, to match our two introductions we got if you were here all the way back at the beginning. But this is our last major judge cycle. And in these major judge cycles, we've grown used to the six-step cycle that these things follow. 
First we see rebellion, then wrath, then regret, rescue, rest, repeat. And right here, Judges 13, verse 1, we already got steps 1 and 2. We got rebellion. The people, again, rebel against the Lord, which we know that means idolatry. And we've got step number two, wrath. The Lord pours out his wrath as he hands his people over to the Philistines. All of that makes us anticipate, all right, here comes step number three in our cycle. We've got rebellion, wrath, here comes regret. The people of God, they're about to cry out in their misery over their, impression, over their oppression, but I'm going to knock my glasses on the floor. Over their oppression, they're going to cry out in misery, but the interesting thing is that that's not what happens. Like, you can look all over chapter 13 for it, and you won't, you won't find it. Why? Why aren't the people crying out in regret? It's because, like we've already seen in previous judge cycles, the people have been Canaanized. In other words, they've got Canaanite tribes living around them, and they've become comfortable with Canaanite culture. They've become the same as the culture that, that surrounds them. We'll, we'll see that throughout this Samson cycle. We'll see them settle in and get comfy with the Philistines. So these people don't express regret because they don't see themselves in need of rescue. They've rebelled, and they have no Regret, which is what makes the next thing that happens so amazing. If, if the people did cry out in regret, we would expect step number four of our cycle, which is rescue. We would expect the Lord to raise up a rescuer. But here's what's so amazing. Even without regret, without a hint, God raises up a rescuer. Look at it. Verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you're barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Look at the end of verse 5. And he, your son, shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Nobody's asking for a savior. Still God sends one. Since Samson. Samson, the savior nobody asked for. Not even his mom as far as we know. This unnamed woman will never get her name. She's introduced to us as barren with no children. That repetitive phrase, it's a callback. Lots of callbacks this morning. It's a callback to Genesis 11 and verse 30. There we hear the exact same phrase about Abram's wife, Sarai. But when we hear this about Abram's wife, Sarai, we also hear about Sarai's desire for a child. As a matter of fact, we get that same thing with every other barren woman in Scripture ever described to us. Sarai, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Elizabeth. All of their stories contain indicators of their desire for a child. Samson's mom, her story is the only one void of such a description. And, and please hear me, Shades. I am not trying to read into Samson's mom's mind. Okay, I'm not saying that she didn't have those desires would be willing to bet everything I know that she did. What I am saying is that our author of Judges has purposely not included those. 
He's telling this story in a certain way. He's telling this story, this personal story of this woman, in a way as to make it mirror the corporate story of Israel. We're going to see this again and again throughout the Samson cycle. This, this happens with Samson's whole life. God is going to use Samson's personal story as a, a picture, an embodiment of Israel's corporate story. Everything we've seen true about Israel, it's going to be true about Samson. Israel has been canonized. Samson, canonized. Israel's comfortable with the Philistines. Samson's going to be trying to marry him. He becomes this embodiment of Israel's story and of the, the story of God's relationship with his people. Shades, here's where we need to see something really vital and important right at the beginning of Samson's story where so many interpreters go astray. Don't make the mistake of thinking Samson's story is about Samson. Like more than ever before in the book of Judges, characters are going to seem to get the center stage in Samson's story. The corporate lens has been very big in our face thus far. Every judge we've gone through, yeah, we might have gotten some details about their lives, but they were constantly tied to being commanders of Israel's army or their role in overarching Israel. With Samson, everything's going to get very small and very personal. It's going to seem like characters take center stage. Right here in chapter 13, it seems that way with his parents. Chapter 14 and following, it's going to seem that way with Samson himself and all of his escapades, especially with the ladies. God and his relationship with his people, it's going to seem like it fades into the background, but shades, that is not what is happening. Samson is not taking center stage. Who is? God. God, and through this story, Specifically, we are going to get amazing displays of God's grace. Specifically, right here in chapter 13, this story, it's not about the characters in it. It's about God's grace displayed through his kindness and his call. This story, it's not about characters. It's about God's kindness. And it's about God's call. It's, it's about a God of grace. It's about the God who saves I can show you that it's not about characters just by their names. Only two men are named in this passage, and both of them, their names can be interpreted very negatively. Manoah is named. His name means resting place. Just read through the chapter, and you will see he is anything but a resting place. He is quite restless himself. He is not portrayed positively. Samson's our only other one that gets named. And his name, you can take it positively or negatively. We'll go through both of those uh, throughout our weeks with Samson. But even the positive usage of his name is not that great. The only character portrayed and held up as positive right here is Samson's mom. And she doesn't even get named. Why? It's the author's way of saying this story is not about her. This story is not about characters. It's about God's kindness and God's call. It's about his grace. It is about his relationship with his people. God is going to use Samson's personal story as a picture of Israel's corporate story. The story of his relationship with his people. That's what we see already happening right here with Samson's mama. Do you see how? Israel, see how our author makes her story parallel Israel's. Israel was empty, barren, 
and in need of a savior. Samson's mom was empty, barren, and in need of a son. And though neither was asking, as far as we're told, God is answering, already giving. Shades, do you see? Behold the grace of God through his kindness. Even when no one is asking, he is moving to save. Shades, this this is Judges 13 showing us why, why we should trust God. Because this is his disposition to us, one of grace-filled, overflowing, undeserving kindness. Behold the kindness of God and let it fill you with, with trust. This is what we are meant to see. And not just through the fact that God is raising up a rescuer when nobody asked. We're also meant to see his kindness through the way he is doing it. He does it very personally. God doesn't just move to save his people corporately, yes, but also personally. He moves into your life. We see that through the way he brings about this rescuer. He comes personally to visit Manoah's wife. Verse 3 tells us she was visited by the angel of the Lord. That's a technical title, and we don't have time to go through all of the argumentation, but throughout our study in Judges, we have seen and come to believe The angel of the Lord is none other than the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus. This is no mere messenger. This is God coming personally. Why? Because he sees and he cares. Even if she doesn't know she's in need. You can see that in what he says to her. What are his first words? Behold. Behold. Pay attention to. Hello. Wake up to this situation. You've got a need. Behold, you are barren and have not born children. That might strike us as something insensitive to say, as if she needed to be informed. But Shade, you've got to remember, Samson's personal life serves as a picture of God's relationship with his people, and his people are currently in need of a Savior, and they don't even know it. Yet in his kindness, he comes to his people and he makes their need known. Even if that hurts, he reveals the hurt for the purpose of healing it. That's what we see through his words. Look at it. Behold, you're barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. And not just any son, a savior. Keep reading, verse four. Therefore, Be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. You're going to have a son who's going to be a Nazarite. Nazarite, that, that, that word, literally at its root, it just means set apart or consecrated. Uh, to be a Nazarite, you, you would take a vow. You can read about it if you want to. Go back to Numbers chapter 6. To be a Nazarite, you would take this voluntary Nazarite vow for a specified time of consecration. And during that time of your vow, you would avoid three things. You avoid alcohol. You would avoid cutting your hair. And you would avoid any form of a corpse. If you want to know the details and reasons behind that, let's talk later, but basically all of these things serve as signs that you are dedicating yourself to the Lord. 
the son of Manoah's wife, he was to be a Nazarite, but not voluntarily. That's how the vow was normally taken. But no, he was divinely set apart, and not temporarily. The vow was normally for a defined period of time, but he's going to be a Nazarite from the moment of his conception until the day of his death. I know it's from the moment of his conception because his mama's got to follow the Nazarite vow as long as she's pregnant with him. Because she wasn't pregnant with just any son. She was pregnant with a set-apart savior. For we're told at the end of verse 5, he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Shades, do you see the grace of God through his kindness? He sends a savior for his people who don't even know that they're lost. They've made friends with the enemy. Do you see his same kindness extended towards us? Over a thousand years after the events in Judges 13, there would be another woman who would get a visit from an angel to be told she will have a miraculous birth, give birth to a set-apart Savior, Jesus. Jesus who would embody the story of God's relationship with his people. But in the opposite way of Samson, Samson, we're going to see, will embody everything wrong with Israel. He will represent Israel in all of their depravity. Jesus will embody everything that Israel was called to be. This is why we call him the true Israel. He will represent God's people by being the actual savior that they do need. And he will come even though no one is asking. In fact, he will come while we are all actively rejecting him. That's what Romans 1 says, that we all are actively bought up into the same kind of idolatry we see in Judges chapter 13. We all are in an active state of rejecting God. And it's in that moment that he comes for us anyway. Romans 5 says that while we were still his enemies, he came. This is how he makes known his ridiculous love. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But behold his kindness. It is kindness that makes him go, behold, you are barren and dead in sin and in need of a savior. We live in a culture that says that's insensitive. It's his kindness. Shades, if this, if this is his disposition towards me, then I can trust him when he calls. Even when that call looks like it's gonna lead me into more darkness. Even when that call looks like it's gonna lead me towards death itself. Even when that call looks like it's gonna lead me towards free fall. Shades, do you see? Do you see? Even when it is dark behind me and looks like free fall in front of me, even when it looks like I'm surrounded by death in both directions, Jesus, the embodiment of God's kindness, convinces my heart to trust. This is why, this is why I trust him. Because nothing this world can throw at me can kill his kindness. Not even death. His kindness has saved me from that too. This is why we can trust him. Because I know no matter what's coming at me, I know that I know that I know his disposition towards me is kindness. This is not only why, this is what, Shades. This is what it looks like to trust. What, 
what it looks like to trust is following God's call even amidst the dark. That's what it looks like. Even when I don't have answers, I follow. That's what it looks like to trust the one who calls. That's what we see in the rest of Judges 13. We've seen why we trust God because his disposition towards us is always kindness. And now we see more of what that looks like through his call. Look at verses six and seven. Actually, look at verse eight. In verses six and seven, the woman goes to her husband, Manoah, tells him everything that's happened. And Manoah, restless person that he is, got just a few questions. And so in verse eight, he prays, oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and and teach us what we're to do with this child who will be born. Like, I got questions. Great, you gave her some instructions for the pregnancy, but what about after those nine months? What do we do then? And God in his kindness, I want you to read through this chapter, his kindness is all over. In his kindness, he answers Manoah's prayer. He sends the angel of the Lord again. Manoah gets to meet him and ask his questions. And it's kind of comical. Look at verse 12. Manoah says to the angel of the Lord, now when your words come true, like I believe they're gonna come true, but what is, what is to be the child's manner of life? What we do after the nine months? What, what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Huh. The angel just repeats his instructions that he's already given. Just here's what to do during pregnancy. Nothing Nothing new. It's like he's saying, I've given you enough. Trust me. Manoah, this is what trust looks like. Not following instructions or a laid out process, but following a person. Trust me. Oh, Shades, how often do I want from God a laid out process or instructions because I really don't feel like trusting his person. His call to Manoah and his wife right here is follow me. That's the call, trust me. Even though you don't have answers, Manoah, even in this dark world in which you're living in and it's only gonna get darker, Samson's story is going to get dark, Shades. Like when we read chapter 13, it makes us feel kind of warm and fuzzy and like this story's gonna unfold in the same way. It is not gonna unfold how you think it's gonna go. And this is what, this is what it looks like to trust God. He says, follow me precisely when you don't understand. Follow me without having a process or everything laid out. I've given you enough to take the next step and to trust, trust Me, follow me. There's just one problem for Manoah. He doesn't even know who this person is that's asking him to trust him. Like, okay, if I'm supposed to not trust in a laid out process, but but, but trust in, in a person, then who is this person I'm talking to? That's what the angel of the Lord aims to help Manoah see. 
Look in verse 15 to 20. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord, Yahweh, then he'll stay. For, this is why he's telling Manoah to do that. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. He's doing what he's doing in order to reveal something about who he is. Like Manoah moves to to just go about this kind of like standard ancient Near Eastern hospitality process right here. And the angel of the Lord moves to reveal who it is that Manoah's hosting. He says, "Don't, don't make me a meal, make a sacrifice to Yahweh because he's aiming to help Manoah see it's Yahweh he's hosting. Manoah's starting to get a little suspicious. Look at verse 17. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. The angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. That's a callback. The word wonderful is loaded. It's a callback to Judges chapter 6 and verse 13 where the angel of the Lord sat down with Gideon. Gideon asked the angel of the Lord, where are all Yahweh's wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? That's a callback to Exodus chapter 15 and verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Gideon's like, my father has told me about that God, a God of wonders. Where is that God? And in Judges 13, we get the answer right here. Right here. The angel of the Lord, he is Yahweh. He is that God of wonders. He was right there in Judges 6 with Gideon. He's right here in Judges 13 with Manoah. And he's right here with you and me right now. Even when we, like Gideon and Manoah, don't recognize him. We don't recognize him because his name is wonderful. Meaning it's beyond our grasp, beyond our understanding. Gideon, Manoah, us, we all miss God so often, not because he is absent, but because his ways are wonderful. Beyond our understanding as his kindness is working even in the midst of the darkness. Gideon looks around at darkness, I don't see a God of wonders here. Manoah looks around at the darkness, he can't see the God of wonders sitting right in front of him. How often do we look around at the darkness and ask, where is this God of wonders that our fathers told us about? And shades, he's right there and we can't see precisely because his kindness is at work in the darkness. Don't believe me? Look at the center of our faith. Look at the cross. The greatest kindness of God at work, in the midst of the heart of darkness. Do you think the disciples could see it? That they stared at the cross and thought, God of wonders at work. This is what the angel of the Lord is trying to help Manoah and us see. It's what he gives Manoah a glimpse of. Look at verse 19. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and 
offered it on the rock to Yahweh, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. That phrase is gonna get repeated for us in the very next verse. It's being emphasized. They're being given a glimpse. Manoah and his wife were watching. When the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar, ascended. I love it. We are getting from the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, in his movement right here, he is giving us a precursor picture of his entire life. He gives us a picture of the beginning as he comes and announces a miraculous birth to a woman. He gives us a picture of the end with this ascension. And in the middle, he will be the Samson that we truly need, the embodiment of everything God's people should have been. Angel of the Lord went up with the flame from the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching. They got a glimpse, we know it, because it says, and they fell on their faces to the ground. Because they know. They know now who it is that they're hosting. Just read the following verses, 21 through 25. They know that they've seen God. Manoah thinks that they're going to die because they've seen God. Because remember, he's the resting place who's restless. His wife has got to be like, chill, bro. God wouldn't have just told us our future to kill us now. This doesn't even make logical sense. They know that they have seen the Lord. And so they follow they have a son. They raise him as a Nazarite. They trust God's call. Why? He didn't even answer their questions. True. But he gave them something greater than answers. He gave them the answerer. He gave them himself. He showed them who it was that was calling them to trust. And that was enough. That was worth more than any process, than any set of instructions, than any rule book, than any plan. That was worth more for them to see and know his person. They know who it is that's calling them to trust and they are to live the rest of their lives trusting. They will never see the angel of the Lord again. That's what verse 21 says. Look at it. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Like they've been called to trust and they've got to live the rest of their lives not getting any of their questions answered, just knowing who it was that called them. And Shades, this is what, this is what trusting him, God, looks like following his call even when, especially when we don't get our questions answered and we cannot see because of the darkness that surrounds me, even when I don't have all of the answers, even when the way ahead looks like death, I follow Christ. That's what trusting looks like. And that's how, Shades. That's how I trust him. I follow a person, not a process. I keep my eyes on him, on the person who called me, knowing him, knowing his character, his kindness towards me. I keep the vision of who it is that's called me to follow in front of me and keep my heart convinced of his kindness. That 
That is what will empower me to trust even when the way ahead looks like death. That's what will keep me clinging to Christ. That's what trust looks like. That's what the call looked like for Manoah and his wife. That's what the call looked like a thousand years later for Joseph and Mary. You can't help but notice as you go throughout this chapter how much the story of Manoah and his wife parallel that of Joseph and Mary. An angel tells Mary that she's miraculously going to give birth to a savior. An angel confirms that message to Joseph in a dream. And those are the only angelic messengers that Joseph and Mary will ever receive. You ever thought about that? That they had to spend the rest of their lives trusting. Like all the while knowing that they are headed for darkness and suffering. They knew that from day one. Mary was prophetically told that in Luke chapter 2 and verse 35. She was told that a sword will pierce your own soul. And it does through the death of her son. And she followed all the way there. Mary was at the foot of the cross. She followed a person. Christ, she followed him all the way into darkness, even into the darkness of death, believing that somehow God's kindness that he had promised was at work. Shades, this is what trust looks like. And through Judges 13, I believe God is extending his hand and asking, do you trust me? Even though all your questions haven't been answered, even though there's so much that you cannot see, even when there's darkness behind, free fall ahead, Do you trust my kindness when I call you to follow me? Shades, we can for the same reason that Manoah and his wife could, for the same reason that Mary and Joseph could. We can because like them, we have also been given a glimpse. We have caught a glimpse of the God who has called us. We have caught that glimpse in the face of Jesus Christ. In his kindness, the one we follow, God has revealed himself to us through our Savior. A Savior that we're going to see in the coming weeks is superior to Samson in every way, beginning with his name. Samson, he's named in verse 24. I told you that name could go positive or negative. I'll just give you the positive one. We'll save the negative for later. Samson's name literally means little son. It's the word for son, but it's in the diminutive form. Sonny boy. Little son. Positively, you could take that as he's like a small ray of light breaking into the darkness of of judges. Maybe that's why his parents named him that amidst the darkness of those days. But even then, he's just a little ray of light. That's confirmed by verse five. Did you catch it? It said that Samson would only begin to save God's people from the Philistines. He won't complete it. He'll just begin it. Just begin to save. Little ray of light. But Jesus' name, Jesus' name literally means Yahweh will save. 
And it was given to him in Matthew 1 and verse 21 because we are told he would completely, not partially, not beginning, no, he would finish it. He would completely save his people from their sins. Shades, do you see God's kindness towards you in Christ? Do you hear his call to follow him, the person, through all of the darkness of this world, even through death itself? Through Judges 13, do you hear him say, trust me? Trust me. Let's pray. Father, you don't just call us to trust, but you show us why, why we can. Because you are kind. I pray pray that this morning we see that kindness take on flesh embodied in your sending of your son, Jesus, even when we weren't asking. And I pray that as we catch a glimpse of your character, your kindness in Jesus, that that would keep our hearts convinced. through all of the darkness that we face in this world. May we be a people who are convinced there is a future and a hope because we follow a God who is kind. Increase our trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name and by your spirit.